Welcome to Common Thread. We hope you find these lessons helpful, but also we'd like to get to know you. If you go to our website slash newcomer, we'll send you an email, some things to read about the community, and an invitation to a personal chat. If you're here in Raleigh, maybe face-to-face. If not, on Zoom. We hope you will. CommonThreadChurch.org slash newcomer. Okay, here's the lesson. Making space for the other. Today I want to start with a little bit of good news. You might have seen this article floating around on the the web this week. Um, (coughs) Why the last 10 years of American life have been uniquely stupid. I think the subtitle, it's not just a phase. Uh, it's t- it highlights the structural changes that have happened in our society that are driving the chaos that we are all experiencing. So try to find the article. Uh, Atlantic will Monthly will give you uh, five free articles a month, I think, so you can uh, take a look at it. And the upshot of the article isn't particularly surprising. The way that we get our collective information has changed. And those changes are fragmenting us. Uh, Mostly it comes down to media business models where the more outrage that is generated, the more demonizing, the more ads are sold. So consequently, this is a problem. And it's not a problem that's going to be going away anytime soon uh, until these business models are changed. So how shall we live while things are the way they are? Well, in the article, there was a bit of good news. Uh, Those toxic business models have given us a way, way distorted view of each other. It turns out only a very small minority of us, people in our country, have exceedingly extreme views, left or right. It's 6% for one, I think it's 8% for the other. The problem is those small percentages get the airtime they get the positioning in our news feeds, which has given us a very skewed view of what actually is. Most Americans are able to listen across the divide. Sure, we are inflamed. We are all inflamed right now. And when you're inflamed, you don't do your best thinking. That's true. But most of us don't have a core belief that demonizes the other. Most of us don't have a position that cannot hear the perspective of the other. Now, again, when we're inflamed, but if we can tone down the inflammation, most of us are disposed to be able to hear and to work with the other, to hear the common sense that exists in the other's perspective. Now, I think that's good news. The problem is that the able to work with other people, people, are inflamed. It's really hard to do when you do that. The second problem is those able to work with other people, people, have been shut up and shut down. And the forces that have been doing the shutting up and doing the shutting down, they're not going away anytime soon. So if we can uninflame, if we can tone down the, the feeling, most of us are able to hear one another. If we can craft a proper invitation, we can invite working with one another, which I think is good news, especially if we're going to take seriously this mission that Jesus has given us to be peacemakers. It's not as impossible 
as it appears. I know when I've said the third, a third, a third, I've made other remarks, people said, where are the people we could work with? I just can't imagine. Well, that failure of imagination is what happens when we get this skewed, distorted view fed to us day after day after day after day. So if we can see a bigger picture and if we can uninflame, we can work together, we can listen together, we can respect each other, we can learn from one another. But we can't do it, we've seen so far in this lesson, if we give scorn pride of place. If we allow scorn into our thoughts, if we allow scorn into our words, this is not going to happen. If you missed the last couple lessons, you can have a listen online. Last week was, scorn makes us stupid. Scorn reduces our perspective. Scorn causes us to have a reductionist view. We cannot see the bigger picture, the full picture. So today's lesson is going to be a little bit of context and two stories. But first, here are the questions that we're going to be talking about afterwards, give you some time to be thinking. You're going to hear today about a brain pattern uh, that has become a philosophy, and it's kind of a bedrock of Western society. It's called essentialism. And as you hear about this philosophy slash brain pattern, I'd like you to be looking for instances of it in your own mind, looking for instances of essentialism in your own thinking. How have my thought patterns fallen prey to the reductionist way of thinking that we do when we are inflamed? And then when we get together in our groups and we're having the discussion, let's see if we can then reimagine how we might more accurately understand the other if essentialism was not dominating our thinking, not dominating our conversation. So what to be thinking about is examples. You're looking for examples as we go through the lesson from your own life. Uh, okay, that'll give you some time to be thinking. So, how to reduce our own reductionist thinking. We've seen, just mentioned a moment ago, scorn makes us stupid. We've seen when we have a reduced understanding, when we have simplified what is actually complex, we are blinded to more than what's going on. Anything, we've got a story that we tell, we've got a thing that we've latched onto, we've got a singularity to our focus, and the rest of the stuff gets eclipsed. We don't see it, we don't interact with it, we don't engage with it, we don't factor it in when we go about making our decisions, trying to solve our problems. There's a reason we do that. We do that because our brains are always trying to make it simple, make it simple, make it simple. The world is complex, and as magnificent as our brains are, they have limited capacity. So in order to cope in a complex world with limited capacity brains, our first instinct is always to streamline new stuff, different stuff, into categories that we already understand, just what our brains do. So, see a tiger in the jungle for the first time. Never seen a tiger before. Here's what our brains do not do. They do not consider the newness of that experience. They do not compare and contrast this furry creature with other furry creatures. That is not what our brains do. Our brains very rapidly streamline tiger down to the essentials. Four legs, run fast, sharp teeth, looks hungry. <laughs> and then before we even finish thinking that thought, we are running or we are climbing a tree, we are doing something. That's how our brains function because the brains that did that survived. The brains that didn't do that became dinner for a tiger. 
So you and I are the children and the great-great-great-grandchildren of the people who survived. Consequently, we carry in our heads a very robust version of that streamline and categorize trait. It's in our brains, which applies to tigers, it does, but it doesn't just apply to tigers. It also applies to people. Our brains will do it with people just like with tigers. Stranger with an axe, better run. But here's the thing, streamlining and simplifying and categorizing human beings is notoriously unreliable. Human beings just are complex. Now our brains do it anyway. That person fits into the hipster category and hipsters are like this. That person fits into the evangelical category and evangelicals are just like that. That person is white or black or brown or wealthy or poor and boom, we have streamlined, we have categorized, we have defined. Evangelicals are just like this. White people are just like that. Which is great for simplifying the world that we live in. It's great for being able to make decisions faster. It's great for being able to take the limited brain resources we have and spread them around in a way that we, way that we need so we can maximize our capacity. But it's also a great way to get a whole lot of stuff really, really wrong. So <clears throat> that brain trait kind of got enshrined in Western society with Plato. Um, <clears throat> take the human tendency to streamline, and he came up with a philosophy that eventually kind of percolated through the generations and became known as essentialism. There is an essence to all things, essentialism says. Uh, Plato called that essence the form. This stripping th down thing that our heads does, okay, let's assume that it's right, we do that, we assume that our stripped down category is correct. And then we say, let's assume that there is an essence to a thing. Now, what Plato did was idealize that es essence. He said, let's make it the purest form of the thing, let's call it the form. We Westerners have been deeply influenced by Plato and we do have these brains and we just do essentialism. We get up, we brush our teeth, and then we do essentialism. It's how we live. So off we go to do what our brains do, never considering that in some contexts, this might be exceedingly unhelpful. Off we go to define others according to their essence, their essential quality. They are this way. We are that way, but they are this way. And then we believe our brain's simplified version of them. And then we act on what our brains believe. And in the process, we cause a lot of harm. You know the essence of black people-ness. It's just this way. So, you know, we better Jim Crow. Yep, that would be better for everybody. Well, you know the essence of Tutsi is just this way, so, you know, we better genocide. That's best for everybody if we do that. Well, you know the essence of Jewishness. It's just this way, so we better Holocaust. That would be better for everybody. 
Now, we hear those historical instances and we say to ourselves, we would never do that. But if you have a human brain, you do that. And you do it every, every day. You streamline, you make quick categories, you assign characteristics to the category and to the individual who fits in the category, and then we all do harm. Those Republicans, they are just that way, we better X. Those Democrats, they're just that way. Those Christian nationalists are just that way. We better do Y or Z. We reduce our thinking down to essence, and then what comes next is just reductive. It can't but be reductive. And usually what reductive becomes is discriminatory. Often it becomes a caricature of the thing, becomes uh, extremist. And all the chaos that we are experiencing as a society, that is what our brains do on essentialism. We are going full steam dehumanizing each other these days. We are going full steam creating crude stereotypes of the other one. We are normalizing scorn in our public discourse and we're doing a whole bunch of reductionist thinking which we saw last week scorn does because scorn just makes us stupid. It hides from us the fuller picture, the broader picture, the bigger picture. Now, it is possible to be in a group because groups are also deeply human it is possible to be in a group and not devolve into essentialism. It's possible to do that. It can be done, but it requires a higher level of thinking. So, we walk the spiritual journey because that's one of the ways we get a higher level of thinking. So, we undertake the spiritual practices because they help us rise above our more base natural selection instincts. We work the circle. We do the communal practices and the contemplative and the learning and the serving practices to help us be observers of our own thoughts, to become observers of our own words, observers of our own actions, be able to stand back from them, dissociate from them, not let the power of ego dominate us. We do all that stuff so that we don't fall prey to the default setting that has become Western essentialism. So, a couple of stories, one, getting essentialism very wrong, and one, getting it very right. The first is a World War II story. The British, Londoners in particular, they knew that bombing was coming. They knew that London was a prime target, and they knew that Hitler would try to break their will by bombing civilians. And they had a popular book, uh, that, that everyone assumed was an accurate assessment of the human condition, told them what was going to happen. It was called The Psychology of the Masses. And it articulated to the mainstream a shared understanding that said, this is the way human beings are. Hitler had the same book. Uh, consequently, Londoners knew what was going to happen after the bombing began. There would be terror and there would be panic Consequently, there would be civil unrest and the military would not even be able to mount a defense because the citizenry would be running amok. That's what was going to happen according to this very popular shared understanding book. They had the book. They knew what it said. They knew what was going to happen. 
Hitler also had the book, so he sent the Luftwaffe and said it's to destroy the British will to resist. So then, September 7th, 1940, uh, the bombing began. The air raid sirens sounded, and for nine months, more than 80,000 bombs were dropped on London. I was just there visiting Jack and got to meet his new granddaughter and went to the neighborhood where they lived and just looked down the street, and you could see all the homes that had been destroyed during the Blitz. You could, they had a different outside. They had a different thing. You could just see vast neighborhoods that had been destroyed. Entire neighborhoods wiped out, uh, a million buildings damaged, 40,000 people killed. But here's what the British did not do. They did not revert to their most base instincts. They did not panic. They did not erupt into violence. According to accounts, after the bombs, boys kept playing in the street. Shoppers kept haggling in the markets. Policemen kept directing traffic. One American journalist interviewing someone said, aren't you, aren't you afraid? Well, what good would that do? As they continued sipping tea. They joked during the Blitz. Uh, a sign on one shop after a wall had been blown out said, we are open, more open than usual. <laughs> a pub proprietor put out a sign that says, our windows are gone, but our spirits are excellent. Come on in and taste our spirits. <laughs> And when the city did not descend into all that fear and all of that chaos, the story that Londoners told themselves, here's what Hitler did not take into account. Hitler did not take into account British character, did not take into account our stiff upper lip. But here's the failure of imagination. When the tide of the war began to change and the British went on the offensive, and the Royal Air Force was beginning to plan their strategy, they fell prey to essentialism. That old survival brain trick. We, the British, they told themselves, we have a uniquely British moral character. So our morale was not broken by bombing. But they are not British. And they do not have our character. So while bombing didn't work here, level-headed as we are, it will work on them. Because they don't have the moral fiber that we have. They will crumble into panic and violence. So Churchill gave the order to bomb German civilians. More casualties by a factor of 10 than were killed in London. On just one night in Dresden, more men and women and children were killed than had been killed in London over the entire war. And right up to the final months of the war, the British continued to believe, remained convinced that the best way to end the war was to drop bombs on civilians and break their morale. But it turns out that German people are like British people. And it turns out that bombing did not break their spirits. It actually did the opposite. It made them, as it had made the British, more steely in their resolve. And they, like the British, practiced gallows humor. Story, stories of lighting cigars after a bombing was done in order to celebrate having lived through it. No hysteria. Neighbors helping neighbors. Same kind of joking. A grocer puts out a sign that says, Disaster butter, sold here. An American economist called it the greatest miscalculation of the war. All those deaths 
all those moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas and all those kids and all those grandkids killed because we could not rise above the instinct of essentialism. Killed by a failure of imagination. They couldn't imagine that they are like us. Now, today, we are not carpet bombing one another, but we are suffering the same failure of imagination. Those damn Republicans, they're not like us. They're immoral. Those damn Democrats, they have no character. They are immoral. And when we suffer this failure of imagination, driven by this brain trick, by this philosophy of essentialism, we do damage. We leave things undone that could be done because we can't even see that they're going on because our focus is so, so zeroed in. We do not solve problems that we actually could solve because we can't work together because we have fragmented because all we see is what's in this tunnel vision. And our kids' schools suffer and our poor suffer and eventually our wealthy suffer. Essentialism, so helpful when we're encountering tigers, will kill us living in an interconnected society like ours. Second story is better. Carol posted it on our app uh, right after Roe v. Wade. I grew up, she said, in a church context that focused very heavily on abortion. It was our nation's primary sin. It was killing innocent babies. And our highest moral cause was to protect the unborn. So, ever since I was a little girl, she said, I went to so many prayer services, so many demonstrations. We told ourselves a story that it was a it was spiritual battle, fighting for what is right, fighting for what is good, and fighting for what is holy. Now, I'm very familiar with that story. I grew up in the same culture. I grew up in the same context. Many of us did. It's rooted in a moral foundation, and that is that life is precious. It's rooted in a moral certitude that we are on the side of what is right because life is precious. But here's the thing. Even though life is precious, we still have human brains. And human brains tend to default to essentialism. We tend to reduce what is complex down to what is simple. One of the main ways we do that is those people. Those people do terrible things to babies because those people are this way. And that way, this way, that's about all we think about them. We get that far, they are this way, and then we shut down any further thinking, which will not do if we're actually going to try and solve our problems. Carol's story continued. She said, in my 20s, I did a stint as a volunteer at a pregnancy life center. And there I was on the phone, hearing story after story after story. Women from all parts of society, but who were all facing the same wrenching dilemma. They didn't have what they needed to bring a baby into the world. They didn't have enough money, or they didn't have enough time, or they didn't have a good enough job, or they didn't have a support, the support of a family, or they didn't have health care, or they didn't have the money to be able to get health care. And she said, here I am, young newlywed, with a loving family, with excellent health care, not facing poverty, not facing racial inequity, having adequate birth control, and what? I should give advice to these women? I don't know vulnerable. 
I don't know insecure. I don't know the high cost of any decision that these women will make. And, she said, I started to realize that in all of our prayer services, we had never prayed for adequate health care. We had never prayed for access to birth control. We had never prayed for a living wage. We had never prayed for affordable housing. We had never prayed for a good education. We never even thought about what happens to the babies after they are born. We had a truth, which is an important truth because life is precious. But we didn't have the whole story. We didn't have the whole picture. We had an important truth, but it was only part of the bigger picture. But that streamlined instinct that we all carry in our heads, that essence-ism, that latch on to part of the truth and then run with that instinct, makes it pretty frequent that all we ever see is part of the problem. And seeing only part of the problem makes it virtually impossible to solve the problem. Last week, I introduced the contact hypothesis, a whole body of social psychological research that if you want to make peace, if you want to create space for the other, you start with contact. You be in the same space with the other. You hear the stories of the other. You work on projects with the other. You're part of the PTA together. You shop together. And this body of research over 70 years bears it out. The contact hypothesis works. If we want to reduce intergroup hostility, be in contact. If you want to see the bigger picture so that you can solve the bigger problem, be in contact which is unfortunate, I said last week, because we are increasingly, as a society, not. We are not in contact with the other. We have siloed ourselves considerably, which makes this difficult if we take Jesus seriously. If we take this mission given to us to be peacemakers, it's going to be difficult because we will have to go out of our way to be in contact. But that is where we start. That is the first step. If you want to be part of the solution for what's ailing our country today, contact is what you're going to be working on. Be in contact. Again, it's hard, but that's not impossible. That's doable. It's actually here now, small, doable. That's something we can do to be part of making a difference in our worlds. Now, the first story that I told was a grand failure of imagination because what did not happen contact. The second story was an awakening of imagination because what did happen? Contact. If we're going to be part of the solution to what ails us, what is breaking up our families and breaking up our friendships and breaking up our neighborhoods, what we will be doing, we will be creating contact. And it will be uncomfortable. And it will be difficult and we will have to go out of our way to make it happen. And it will crash and burn because people are inflamed. And when it fails, if we get up and brush ourselves off, and if we learn from our mistakes, and we try and gain further skills and further capacity in being able to do this better, and then we try again, and then we try again, and then we try again, and we keep trying, we can change our worlds. Fail to do that, on the other hand, 
will still be here 10 years from now. So, indwelling divine, makers of peace, may we be. Amen. So, if you would, please prepare your offerings. We all give online now. The donate button is at the top of the website. Lots of options, lots of ways to give. It's about as easy as it can be. So if you're here in Raleigh or if you're far away, we invite you to take an ownership stake in the community. Remember, as we say all the time, there is good return on investment when we invest in community. Because here's what happens. We give our time and our energy and our love and our dollars and the community takes those resources amplifies them and gives them back to us in the form of an environment in which we thrive transform in which we grow so again on the website it's about as easy as it can be uh, that's where we give now now in a minute we're going to dismiss those of you on the live stream we're going to do what are you thinking here in the room and we invite you to do it there on zoom the link is on the front page of our website and if you've hung around this long we're going to trust you with the password get ready here it is 1417 the password is 1417 don't be a troll or we'll turn you off 1417 it's a great way to connect it's a great way to think more deeply about the lesson to think more deeply about your life it's a great way to build a network of people on a shared journey with you so i hope you'll join in and let's uh, go ahead and dismiss the folks online if you would please put your hand on your heart and let's remember as they go that we are every one of us carriers of the indwelling divine Love is in us, joy, peace, patience, kindness, what's called the fruit of the indwelling spirit. It is in us. And so let's look for opportunities to share what's in us. If you would extend your other hand to our city. Let's look for an opportunity to share what's in us with the people that we live and work and go to school with, looking for opportunities to repair and heal our worlds. Amen. Bless you. You all are dismissed. You We'd love to connect with you in real life, commonthreadchurch.org slash newcomer. And if you'd like to take an ownership stake in the well-being of the community, we all contribute online. You'll find a donate button at the top of our website. See you next time. We'd love to connect with you in real life, commonthreadchurch.org slash newcomer. And if you